I'm Greg Keenan, the pastor at Graceway Baptist Church. I know most of you know that, but just in case we have anybody who's not a church member listening, you'll have some idea of who I am and why I'm doing this. A little bit different, we're having a Sunday school lesson here on Sunday evening. Normally we do it before church on Sunday morning, but hey, things change and we're adaptable and this is a good time to do it. Thank you so much for, uh, I guess we could say tuning in maybe and uh, paying attention to uh, what the Lord might say to you through this lesson. We believe that the Bible is always profitable. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that it is inspired by God and every part of it is profitable for us. And so uh, we want to look at this in that manner and in that light. God has something that he is saying to us. And as we've been going through the Beatitudes, we notice that some of the things that Jesus said would have been shocking, terribly shocking to the people of his day, especially the religious people. Now, we've heard them so often, they're not particularly shocking to us. They seem, well, somewhat normal. But the last one that we looked at, <clears throat> pardon me, about persecution, and this one where Jesus amplifies it a little bit, a little bit shocking for 21st century American Christians because we've never really lived in severe persecution, and we don't really expect to have severe persecution. And yet Jesus talks about that and says, blessed, the Greek word there for blessed is makarios, a little different than uh, there are other words that Jesus could have used. Makarios in particular means happy and fortunate and even has the idea of to be envied. This is a person you look at and say, Man, I wish I could be like that. And then he adds this persecution thing. Well, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, we quote Jesus. It says, Blessed are you when they revile you, that means abusive, angry criticism, and persecute you, that means shutting you out, particularly out of the synagogue or out of society or out of social life, and say all kinds of evil against you, now you've got to circle this word, falsely, and maybe underline the next three words, for my sake. So we're talking here about people not who are just jerks and mean and rude and all of that kind of stuff. We're talking about people who are true, genuine believers who are living for the Lord, honoring the Lord, glorifying the Lord, doing what the Lord has commanded us to do, loving God supremely and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so whenever they do speak against you, they have to find something that is false. And they do it because of our love and stance for Jesus Christ. You see that? Verse 12 says, when that happens, now this is not going to be easy, but it's right. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Now this next part, this next phrase, for great is your reward in heaven. You know, we uh, don't think a whole lot about heaven. If you go back and you look at songs that were written and sung by African-American slaves, you will find there's a lot of talk about heaven and about going home. Why? Because life here was so terrible and so oppressive and so unjust and they didn't have any hope of getting out of it. They longed for that chariot to swing low. Remember that song? and take them home and deliver them from this. If you look back at songs that were written during the Great Depression when people were struggling so badly, 
there were a lot of songs that talked about heaven and talked about going home. I think today we are kind of, uh, some might say, fat and sassy here. Life is so comfortable and easy, convenient and good. We don't think just a whole lot about heaven. In fact, for a lot of people today, heaven sounds, just to be honest, a little boring, doesn't it? Uh, what in the world are we going to do for excitement? What are we going to do for entertainment? You know, uh, how is that all going to work? Well, we need to recapture the idea that our God is in heaven and being in the presence of God, being in the presence of Jesus, that's what's going to make it absolutely fantastic. And everything else, seeing our loved ones and friends, that's a side benefit, but the main thing is we're going to be there with Jesus. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul said, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. That was the main thing that uh, he saw about the gathering together of the saints in the rapture. So Jesus is telling us here that we are to rejoice not in the present circumstances necessarily, but in the fact that our reward is great in heaven. And then he adds something else that I think is extremely important to understanding this. He said, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't consider myself to be anywhere in the same league as Paul or Isaiah or Jeremiah. And you probably don't either. But it's persecution that comes, remember, falsely for his name's sake that well, we'll see later on, it puts us in some pretty good company and it categorizes us with those great people who lived in times past. It's not a bad aspiration, is it? So when we look at this particular lesson, I've outlined it like this. Number one, you are setting an example. The Bible uh, tells us here that there are going to be people that will notice us and uh, most of this that Jesus has spoken of in this verse, of course, is negative. We're being noticed by lost people. But I think it's even during times of persecution that saved people notice us as well. It's when we stand out. It's when we're at our best. It's when we have the opportunity to shine for the Lord. It's when we have the joy of showing that we are different because of the grace of God. So sometimes when you think, people are not really paying attention to you and you don't have any impact, well, just wait. God will allow a situation to come into your life where you are reviled and you are persecuted falsely for his name's sake. It could be in your own family sometimes. It could be on the job. It could be at school. It could be in any number of situations. And it makes you stand out. And something happens. Not only do lost people notice that, but saved people notice that as well. Believers are encouraged when that happens. I want to read out of Acts chapter 16. I know you know this story, but I want you to pay attention to it in the context of what Jesus said. It says in Acts 16, 25 through 30, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Okay, do we really need to go any further? Because they're in prison when that happens. They've been imprisoned and beaten unjustly, as Roman citizens, uh, that wasn't supposed to happen to them. And what do we find them? Not cursing and not uh, being bitter and angry, but what are they doing? They're praying and they're singing hymns to God. Now think about what we just said. 
is anybody going to notice when that happens? They're persecuted and somebody pays attention. And the first thing that I would think of is all of the other prisoners would be wondering what in the world is going on and why would these people be doing this? The other thing is, I wonder if Paul and Silas were both, if it hit them at the same time and in the same way. I wonder if maybe Silas maybe started singing and then Paul says, hey, that's a great idea, let's join in. Or maybe it was the other way around. I think probably one of them suggested it or started doing it and it encouraged the other one to join in. And isn't that the way it always is? When we live our life the way God wants us to live, lost people are going to notice because we are different. We are God's, uh, the King James Version says, peculiar people. That may be true, but it means his own special people. We're different. Lost people are going to notice that. And so are believers. And the way we act and the way we live encourages other people to kind of join in and be a part of what we're doing and what God is doing in us. That's why we ought to always be expressive and we ought to always be bold in our worship of the Lord. It encourages other people. But when we read on, something else happens. And the prisoners were listening to them. That's what we just said, isn't it? And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Then the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Just a word of explanation. Roman law said that if you were keeping a prisoner and that prisoner escaped, you were to take the punishment of the prisoner. I'm uh, taking it that there were some prisoners in here who were awaiting execution and the jailer, when he thought that they were going to be gone, he might as well go ahead and kill himself. Well, the Bible says, Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, then brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now this Philippian jailer, would have cared little or nothing about these Jews and about their strange religion because at that time Christianity was considered to be an offshoot, a division or a sect of Judaism and not a standalone religion. And the Romans really had a lot of disdain for the Jews. The Jews were kind of rebellious, they were hard to corral, and nobody wanted to have much to do with them. So this Philippian jailer could have cared less until the earthquake happened. And the prisoners, I wonder what they thought, and I wonder what happened after this. In fact, it is interesting to note that after this event, there was a church in Philippi. In fact, later Paul would write a letter to the Philippian church, and it's out of the context of this persecution, the beating, and the imprisonment, and then the praying and singing, the earthquake, and then the Philippian jailer getting saved. God used their persecution to start a church in this little colony, this little outpost of Rome that was kind of a miniature of Rome itself. In fact, the Bible goes on to tell us that there was more persecution that took place among the Philippians. In Philippians 1.14, Paul writes back to this little church, and he says, And most of the brothers 
having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Did you hear that? Confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know, there's just something about it. Whenever believers stand out and whenever we suffer, whenever we minister, whenever we continue to serve, there's just something special about that. That's really when we're at our best. Because nobody can blame that on flesh. Nobody can blame that on just sheer emotion. It has to be something that is real and coming from within us. It's brought about by the truth of the Word of God in our hearts and by the presence of the Holy Spirit as He empowers us to face this so that others notice and that even other believers, Paul said, are encouraged by our persecution. Well, that doesn't make persecution something that I would pray for or something that I would desire, but it does make it a whole lot more palatable if it should ever come to know that your life and my life could be a blessing to the Lord and to other people and result in people being saved for His glory. In fact, that happened in the early church quite a bit. One of the early church fathers says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the more they tried to kill believers, the more believers there were, and the more churches they, there were. And we've seen that happen in uh, communist countries. When uh, we left China in the, uh, what was it, the late 40s, people said that that would be the demise of Christianity. When China began to open up in the late 80s, we found our shock that there were actually more Christians in China than there were when we had our missionaries there. Why? Because the Word of God is not chained and God uses the persecution of believers for His glory and for the actual strengthening of other believers in the church. So that makes sense. That's what happened in Philippi as well. Secondly, whenever you are persecuted, again, falsely and for His name's sake, then you are strong in the Lord because that's the only way you're going to do what's right. That's the only way you're going to respond properly is to actually be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. When you're persecuted, then your faith is shown to be genuine. And when others reject you, then your faith is actually strengthened. Why would that be? Well, I think the pattern in Scripture, and we've seen this through history, and maybe even you and I have experienced this to some degree, when everybody else rejects you, you find out that you've got that one true friend that sticks closer than a brother, and that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith and your relationship with the Lord is strengthened sometimes because you don't have anywhere else to go. You don't have anyone else to turn to. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, 37-39, Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, including coronavirus, right, shall separate us, shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so during these times, the amazing thing is believers tend to grow stronger and more numerous and have greater impact rather than being shut down, afraid, or even wiped out. Jesus promised us that the gates of hell will not prevail. Praise his name for that. 
Number three, you are accused, and again, we're going to emphasize this word falsely and for his sake. Now, remember that the enemy is, of course, the father of lies. God is truth, the Bible is truth, and you and I are in the truth. It's all about truth. It's all about being real. Now, by that we mean when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we deal with our sins. We don't cover them up. We don't try to act like they don't matter. In fact, we see the cross of Christ, God the Father punishing His own Son for our sins. I don't know about you. That gives me the idea that my sin, even the little ones, even the ones that I don't notice and that maybe you don't notice, were noticed by God and they cost Jesus Christ his life. Pain and agony and the wrath of God came upon him because of our sin. It's a serious thing. And we come to the Lord Jesus Christ confessing the fact that we are sinners and that we deserve hell and we deal with it through Jesus Christ. God didn't just look away and say, ah, don't worry about it. He punished his own son, folks, for our sins, even the ones that we don't think are any big deal. That's serious. That's reality. And so we deal with ourselves in truth. We are depraved, sinful, rebellious creatures who are deserving of eternal wrath in hell. That's truth. And then we see Jesus, the one who lived the sinless life, keeping the law, and he did that in our place so that he could be the unblemished sacrifice. We see Jesus as the virgin-born Son of God who lived a perfect life and died in our place. That's truth. He was more than a carpenter. He was more than just a Jewish itinerant preacher. He was more than just someone who liked to talk religious and theological talk and debate with the Pharisees. This is the God-man, God in human flesh, the only sacrifice for our sins. So when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, that's truth. And so we deal with all of this in the truth. The world covers it, the world hides it, the world excuses it, and uh, one of these days they're going to have to face the truth at the great white throne judgment in the book of Revelation. Well, we face it now because we are in the truth. And when we think about walking in the truth as Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we're going to experience some of the same things that he did. In Mark 14, 55 and 56, Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus. Stop right there. They've got him on trial. They've arrested him. He's having his arraignment and they are seeking testimony? You know what that means? They didn't have a case. They're looking for a case. They want to arrest Jesus. They want to execute Jesus. Now they have to find probable cause to do so. It's backwards, isn't it? Even in their society. They were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They found none. Like Pilate, they had to come to the conclusion, I find no fault in him. They're just not willing to admit it like Pilate was. Now this is extremely important. For many bore false witness against him. Many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. This caused them a whole lot of problem in their prosecution, didn't it? But notice that it had to be false. And that's the way it is in our lives. It ought to be false. When people talk about us, when they revile us, 
when they would try to get to us. It ought to be that they have to look hard, like they did with Daniel, and they can't find anything to fault us with except our faith. That's what happened with uh, Jesus as well. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's another character that this happened to. You remember Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, and when he gets there in Egypt, what happens to him? He becomes a slave of Potiphar, but he rises to the top and he's in charge of all of Potiphar's household. And then Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and Joseph does what the Bible commands us to do, run from fornication. And so what does she do? She turns on him and lies about him. Here's what the scripture says in Genesis 39, verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, quote, this is the way your servant treated me, unquote, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. If you're thinking you know why he was put in that prison, look it up sometime. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Now why did that happen and why did God give him favor? Why did God put him there? This is a sovereign plan of God to get Joseph where he needs to be so that the king's prisoners, Pharaoh's butler and baker, would be in the same prison with Joseph. And all of that was in the chain of events that led him to becoming, the, as some say, the prime minister of uh, Egypt and saving Egypt and Israel through that famine. We remember that. But don't forget... It was the false accusation of Potiphar's wife that caused him to be put in prison. You see, in this case, Joseph was not suffering because of something he had done wrong. He was persecuted because he did what was right. And notice that in that time where he could have just simply given up or gone into despair, what happened? He saw this as God and God's work and God's sovereignty to do something that he didn't fully understand. But one of these days he would understand, and we certainly understand it. And the same thing will be true for you and for me. When persecution comes in whatever form, there's always a reason why God allowed it, and there's always a purpose, and Romans 8, 28 and 29 are still in force. Let's end up by just saying that whenever you're persecuted, you may tend to feel fearful and afraid. You may feel abandoned. You may feel like you've done something wrong. You may feel like it's uh, karma, some people say. And uh, it's not. It's not. In fact, the Bible would tell you this. This would be point number four. You're in good company when you're persecuted. You're in good company. They persecuted the prophets before and they persecuted even our Lord Jesus. So the question would be, are we better than Jesus? He warned us about this. And think of how your Bible hero suffered. You're hard-pressed to find anyone in the Old Testament or New Testament that's a hero that didn't suffer to some degree for their faith and for their belief and for their walk with Christ. That's the norm. What we've experienced in America is not really the norm. It's a blessing. Don't get me wrong, but it's not the norm. And then think of the good that comes out of genuine Christians when they suffer. 
You know, uh, when you squeeze grapes, you get grape juice. And when you squeeze a Christian and pressure them, you get Christ. Because it's Christ in us that is the hope of glory. And our lives should be, think about this, worthy of the devil's attention and the Lord's blessing. I'm thinking about in Acts chapter 9 when Saul of Tarsus was confronted by Christ. And you remember the question? It's a strange one. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was never persecuted physically by Saul of Tarsus. But when Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the body of Christ, Jesus took it personally. He has his eyes, he has a special heart for those who are suffering falsely for his sake. Well, that's the way it is happening here. But let's also understand this. The more you live like Christ and the more you look like Christ, the more you can become a target for the enemy. And rather than running from that, Jesus is telling us we should embrace that and consider ourselves to be makarios, blessed, fortunate, happy, or to be envied. See, that is so foreign to American Christianity. That is so foreign to our culture. That is so foreign as to what we would expect. Now, maybe we don't live in those times, but maybe some of the teenagers in our church, maybe they will. Maybe the little kids, like my grandkids, maybe they will. And we've got to train them, and we've got to teach them, and we've got to be ready for all of this. Now, I want to give you a few examples. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, it says, And when Jezebel, remember her, Ahab's wife, cut off, all the, pro cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. We don't even know those prophets' names. And yet they were persecuted and persecuted by wicked Jezebel. And God took Obadiah and uh, used him to spare their lives. He hid them and he fed them. It tells us that when persecution comes, God will provide what we need. And also, he'll provide ministry. Keep your eye open for people that are suffering, people that are being oppressed, people that are being hurt people that are being rejected, people that are being ignored. And we could go on and on with that. <clears throat> and let's uh, use that like Obadiah did as a time for ministry. And then in Acts 7.52, it says, Which of the prophets did your fathers fail to persecute? Which of your prophets did your fathers fail to persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you are his betrayers and murderers. That's Stephen giving testimony before the people who held his life in their hands. And what did they do? They persecuted him. They even executed him. And Stephen is pointing out that he was in good company because that's what they always did to the true followers of Jesus Christ. So those are just a couple of examples. You can probably think of more. So when you were persecuted falsely for the Lord's sake, what should you do? Rejoice, that's what Jesus said, because you're in good company when that happens. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, said this, The Christian is like his Lord, and this is what our Lord said about him. Woe to you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. That's in Luke 6. 
and yet is not our idea of what we call the perfect Christian nearly always that he is nice, popular, never offends anybody, and is so easy to get on with? But if this beatitude is true, can I add, and it is, that is not what the real that is not the real Christian because the real Christian is a man who is not praised by everybody. They did not praise our Lord, and they will never praise the man who is like him. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. That is what they did to the false prophets. They did not do that to Christ himself. And I would add, and they won't do it to us either. So we have to have a different perspective, a Christian perspective, a heavenly perspective, a godly perspective, a biblical perspective about life that it doesn't necessarily mean we're doing everything we ought to do and everybody's happy about it, and so we ought to feel good about ourselves. It might actually mean that if our lives are not stirring up something somewhere that would be an attack of the enemy and persecution by those who don't love our Lord, if that's not happening, maybe we ought to examine ourselves and remember that Paul said, all who desire to live godly in this life shall suffer persecution. Why such a negative subject? Number one, because Jesus spoke of it. And if Jesus spoke of it, it's always worthy of our attention. And secondly, because I think as believers in this country and in this culture, we may have been just kind of rocked to sleep that this will never happen to us. Maybe it's time that we wake up. And maybe it's time that we do our jobs evangelizing and making disciples, especially of the next generation, because we never know what they might face. And perhaps we and our generation never face the persecution that they do, but we can have a part in preparing them for it. So let's be ready. Jesus wasn't just blowing smoke. He said what he meant, and he means what he says. Pray that the Lord will bless you, and thank you so much for taking time to listen to this Sunday school lesson. And my prayer is that it feeds your soul and blesses your life. Thank you again.